Welcome back to the Prole Podcast, episode three, and we have a very special guest for you today, Dr. Tom Walters. Tom is a doctor of physical therapy that runs one of the most successful Instagram accounts out there today at Rehab Science. He has been in the industry for a long time, seen a lot of things, and he gives us some great insight as to how the industry has changed its way of thinking over the years and where he really sees it going in the future. We also took a deep dive into pain since he is a pain management specialist and he gives you some very simple strategies that you can use today in your day-to-day life to start living a happier and healthier lifestyle. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to present Dr. Tom Walters. All right, back again, Pro Podcast, episode number three, Dr. Tom Walters. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Um, like always, our, pro- our uh, podcast is brought to you by Neckrite. Neckrite is the only uh, inflatable cushion designed to prevent and correct text neck. If you have a kid, I say this all the time, buy yourself a Neckrite. They cost 15 bucks. Uh, you're not going to get a phone out of your kid's hand, but you can bring the phone up to head height and start correcting text neck uh, because, as Tom will probably tell you, necks are getting destroyed left and right for, uh, from cell phones. Uh, so if you go to neckrite.com, N-E-C-K-R-I-T-E.com, and use the promo code PROLE, P-R-O-L-E, you will save 10% at checkout. So, Tom, thanks for uh, joining us here. I appreciate yeah, taking the time. Our, yeah, we but uh, we go back a ways, so but we haven't talked in a while, so it's good to good to be on here and catch up. Yeah, yeah. I uh you know, we were when we were talking before this, before recording, um, yeah, we go back probably back to what 2012, 2013. Yeah. Um, and I was saying, you know, one of the reasons that I was really wanted to bring you on here and, and talk to you is what we've noticed over the past 10 months with the pandemic and the shutdown is uh, social media just being flooded with different PT accounts uh, to try to adapt to help patients and and help the general public with some of their pain. Um, But this is something that you started five, six years ago. You've been on the cutting edge of, of bringing this type of information to the general public, really uh, scientifically backed information, good, high quality information, not just random exercises, uh, but but really putting some thought into it. And so you, um, in my opinion, have been on the cutting edge of a lot of the different trends in not only the, the physical therapy world, but also just kind of the health and wellness industry as a whole. And so I was really interested to to bring you on and kind of hear about where did you start in that world? Um, what have you seen along the way? And what are some of the things that you think are going to start to happen? Yeah. Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, you know, sometimes when you're kind of in the journey, it's hard to pinpoint what the main driving sort of variable was for getting you to where you are and you know hearing you kind of talk about that and thinking about what we were talking about before the show I think uh you know part of uh, probably a big factor in what's helped me kind of 
see new trends and when things are kind of changing in the profession and just in health and wellness, I think a lot of it, I have to give credit to my parents because, and maybe that sounds kind of silly, but I think like I was telling you, my mom's in psychiatry, you know, and so I grew up in a very, and my dad's a social worker. So I grew up in this very psychosocial kind of family. And I think, and then I was sort of always really into exercise and, you know, as a gymnast or martial artist. And so even that martial arts influence, I think those things, because now when we look at health, you know, it's like some of these things just played out. I didn't know what was happening, but they kind of played out in my favor. And I think, you know, now we look at health from this biopsychosocial realm and for sure physical therapy does. And especially when you get into pain science and things. And I grew up in an extremely biopsychosocial family, like really psychosocial. And then the bio was all the, I was studying exercise science and doing all these things. And I think having that perspective as my foundation, um, I think has helped me as we are seeing health more from this biopsychosocial lens, it's helped me sort of see, sort of appreciate those different aspects of health and see when one area is kind of getting a little bit more attention in the research and how that might shift the profession. Mm -hmm. So I really think as I was thinking about it more, you know, I talk a lot with my mom and she's a psychiatric nurse practitioner and I worked with her a lot. I used to work in the psychiatric unit of our hospital where I grew up in the summers. I mean, I was studying actually science and I'd work there in the summers. And I think having sort of that psychology background, I just think those things have played a major factor in how I viewed rehab and pain and sort of injury recovery. And, you know, uh, I just think it's a big factor that I hadn't really thought about a ton before, but yeah, for sure. I mean, it's been, like you said, there's so many people jumping into social media now and kind of jumping on the bandwagon. It used to be that there was only a handful of us that were sort of like the PTs on Instagram and things. And, yeah. uh, now it's just, you know, it's going crazy and everybody's trying to quickly pivot to digital rehab stuff, you know, doing online consultations. And I'm almost sick of seeing it because it's, everyone's trying to market and pump their thing. And it gets, it gets a little tiring to see it all the time, but, um, yeah, it's the world we're in. So I guess you got to try and pivot. Yeah. I remember for, it, it seemed like for years you were like the only person, uh, at, at least consistently putting stuff out, um, yeah. that was at least worth, in my opinion, worth looking at, right? Yeah. Like everyone since the beginning of social media has been taking pictures with their shirt off just to show their <laughs> six pack abs, uh, <laughs> and show off their genetics. But never really give you any like the the scientific information and the background knowledge to help you become a better practitioner or help you really take some of your own um wellness into into your own hands really and i totally i mean I, to me it seems you know i think there's so much of life that's being in the right place at the right time and i didn't you know when i I started practicing, I finished PT school in 2007 and then started practicing. And then I kind of got into, I was involved in a lot of discussions and forums on Facebook and that's where social media kind of happened for me. And there's definitely some people from back then that really helped shape my thinking of pain and rehab. Some really, uh, some names of people that a lot of people who are in that community and on social media would recognize now, sort of some people who become they weren't then, but have become sort of pioneers for new thinking. And uh, I was just fortunate enough to be in, I think, in discussions with them as a new PT. And 
And then I sort of took that and I, again, sort of right place at the right time. I had actually another PT friend. A lot of people might know him, Vinny Rehab uh, on Instagram. He took a course that I was teaching and convinced me to start Instagram. And so, yeah, Vinny, that was in 2012. And I actually deleted my account twice after that. So my account now, I mean, if I had kept it going from 2012, it'd be awesome. But uh, I actually, my Instagram account I have now, I started at the end of 2016. So I could have had like another four years on it. But um, so, but then I, like you said, I just started posting consistently and I took so much of that experience from seeing patients and discussions with people who were smarter than me and took all that and kind of brought it to the new platform on Instagram. And I just so happened that I was probably, there was only four or five of us that were doing it. And all those people who stuck around and were consistent have big accounts now. It's like Doc Jen, Vinny, uh, like Strength Coach Therapy, Teddy. You know, it's a, there's a few of us that kind of started early back in the day and kind of were taught prehab guys. You know, there's a few of us that were kind of from back in the day. And, you know, so it was, I think, like a lot of things in life, it was having the skill set and experience. And then when a door opened, kind of taking it and also being in the right place at the right time, right? there's a bunch of factors. So I can't claim that I knew what I was doing <laughs> back then. <laughs> I, just, I just thought it was a good place to do. I mean, honestly, I deleted that account and I was teaching at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. And I came in, I was teaching biomechanics that day. And a student came up to me after I deleted my account and said, you know, you had some exercises for a rotator cuff problem. And my mom, I was showing them to her and I was helping her, but I can't find them now. And I left class that day and realized that, 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 that type of electronic form of media could be powerful and could be positive. And I started the account and just sort of set myself with the sole intention that I was going to post something every day that was helpful and wasn't something narcissistic where it was me like doing those things that you talk about flexing in the gym and doing yeah. stuff nobody really cares about. I was just going to do things that were actually helpful and um, do them consistently. And I think that formula really ended up being really successful. There's a lot of people that have those intentions, but aren't consistent with it. And it just so happens that I like writing and I like, I'm an introvert. So conversing with people on social media isn't draining to me. Um, right. So it just, there's a bunch of things that worked out that particular thing worked out for me and awesome that it started back then. And now we have a pandemic. So I already had it going. So it's, uh, there's a lot of luck in that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. But I think like you said, right. Is having that, uh, that skill set, And then once that door opens, you know, taking your shot and jumping into it. Um, for sure. And it's, you know, I, I've shared a lot of your same situation I've shared a lot of your stuff with family members or friends that come to me and ask me like, Hey, how can I, I'm like, dude, just, just follow this here. Just do, do this, do that. Um, but it makes it very, uh, for anyone that at least has a small grasp of some of the corrective exercise that needs to get accomplished. It's very easy to share that information, which is nice because we live in such a, you know, uh, a, a transient world now, it's, we're so global. It's very rarely are you in the same town uh, as the people that you know anymore. Yeah. Well, and the cool thing about all the rehab stuff and pain is that exercise and education have the best evidence. So you can do those with your phone. I mean, I have so many interactions with people now because of how big this account's gotten. I interact with people like in the Middle East and South Africa and like all over, you know, and 
I'll, I'll hear people, you know, there, there are a lot of times there are people who are in countries where they don't have, sometimes there isn't even physical therapy isn't a profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's too expensive or it's too far to go to access it, but they have a phone and I've had, had lots of conversations with people in those areas where like, I was doing these things and I got better and I was going to fly somewhere and have surgery. And I ended up doing this, you know, I didn't have access to care, but I had my phone and I could do the exercises and I got better. And man, that stuff, that's all the motivation I need is to, you know, those kind of things keep me going. And it, it's just, you know, when you think about exercise, it's a bummer when you can't touch people. I mean, in this pandemic world, like I do a lot of hands-on stuff with people and use my hands to diagnose things. And so in doing online consultations, I definitely realize it's a slower process, but you can still get people there. I mean, if it were right, if I had my preference, I would always be in person and be able to work on people. But, um, it is cool to see just basic kind of simple exercise stuff and education, get people better too. Yeah. And that was actually one of the questions, uh, you know, that I really had for you was because you've been in this, uh, virtual kind of PT side of it for so long, what are some of the, you know, if you, if you're going to paint with a broad stroke brush here is what are some of the things where you've noticed like, Hey, you know, I'm really, we have a lot of really good outcomes maybe with like total knee or, but not total hip, or, uh, we have really good outcomes with, uh, low back pain, but not cervical pain when it comes to people going through this virtual type setting. Because I think right now, like you said, um, a lot of people are searching, right? Hey, I, I can't physically go see someone. So what am I going to do? But also too, you know, I think we talk about, oh yeah, in South Africa, they might not have this profession or, or somewhere in the middle of Africa, they think about that. But what about the person in the middle of Nebraska, mm-hmm. right? Where that takes them two and a half hours to get to Omaha, yeah. right? And then two and a half hours back, it's not practical for them to go see someone in person. So I'm even thinking like in, in our own country where they're on these kind of like health deserts, health islands, yeah. um, what, what are the, the general types of things that people can, can get some pretty good outcomes in this type of setting with? Yeah, I think the things that are less complicated, which usually means things that are farther from the spine, you know, so mm-hmm. like if you have a pain that's out, like you say, my hand hurts right there, probably the thing that's hurting you is right there, you know, <laughs> right. as like, it just, it's like that in our nervous system, as you get farther out from the spine, usually where it hurts is often where the issue really is. I mean, that's not always true because you can have nerve radicular type pain and things, but as you get closer to the spine and the nerves all converge together, a lot of different conditions can mimic each other. So mm-hmm. I think when it comes to telehealth, things that are farther from the spine are easier. You can manage pretty well. Like if somebody has like a tennis elbow, like it hurts here when I grab things, it's like, well, that's not hard for me to figure out virtually and give someone exercises and kind of guide them through that process. But if somebody's got like, like pain in their buttock and they're, you know, trying to figure out what is this, it's like, well, you could have like SI joint, hip joint, lumbar referral, like that, that kind of stuff as it gets into the spine for sure there's people that do really well and what you hypothesize is the right thing and it works right away, but there's people who aren't and it's just more complex spinal region kind of pain stuff that it just, it's slower. And that's where I, not being able to touch someone and go through that differential diagnosis process is really frustrating for me, you know, and I've mm-hmm. definitely had people where 
I've done virtual consultations with them and I'm like, honestly, you know what? You just need to go see somebody in person to really tease this out. And then I use their zip code and find someone and kind of search out the people that I think would be the best for them to go to. And so that for sure, I've had that happen, you know, a bunch of different times where it just, I, I feel like it's a disservice or it's really slow. The process would be, the progress would be really slow if I just tried to keep them with me and go through it virtually. I'm like, you know, just go see somebody. They can actually do these tests in person and you'll get to an answer faster. Yeah. Yeah. That when you say it, that makes perfect sense, right? Is the, the closer to your spine, the closer to your, to your nervous system, really the more complex it's going to be to, to diagnose and work through. Exactly. Um, um, so, and you brought up, uh, I think one of the, right when you said the word pain, I was like, hooray, let's talk about pain. <laughs> yeah. uh, because I know that's one of your big specialties is uh, talking about pain and hey, uh, from the first podcast that I, I uh, brought up is we talked about how pain isn't always a physical thing, right? And uh, acute pain can turn into chronic pain. Um, and it, it's also tied to your emotions. So can you give us kind of, I guess your, how would you define pain? That, that's always my first question when we start talking about pain is how do you define it? Because you know what it is when it's happening to you, mm-hmm. but it gets, I think it gets more gray the longer that pain lingers around. And some yeah. people, the pain stops and some people it keeps going. Yeah, I think, you know, the International Association for the Study of Pain has the best pain definition. And I taught pain, I developed a pain science class when I was at Westmont College and taught that. And I think it really, their definition is good, which basically says it's an unpleasant sensory experience, right? So it's something you are sensing, it's an unpleasant experience that's associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So that just means that you actually have damage, like you sprain your ankle and it hurts and you stretched a torn ligament and it hurts. So there's actual tissue damage or like in the chronic pain, persistent pain cases, it could be a potential tissue damage where your brain perceives that something is going to be damaged. So it outputs pain to protect you, you know, and that's the neuroscience research has basically shown that in 100% of the time that pain is output of the brain, it's an illusion created by your brain to protect you. It doesn't come from your tissue. Your tissues have nociceptors which are basically now we call them danger receptors they aren't we should they used to you'll still see old textbooks that call them pain receptors but they're not pain doesn't happen until your brain outputs it so it's just danger like i'm probably getting nociceptors firing right now because i've been sitting on my butt for too long and naturally we just kind of shift our posture and move around like when those nociceptors fire you kind of just you know you're you're constantly changing and moving around and but if you were to if i were to sit here for like eight hours eventually that danger, those danger messages might become sufficient enough that my brain would decide, Hey, I should output pain and try to get this person to do something different. Mm -hmm. But that is where that whole biopsychosocial model comes in because sensory information from your body, that nociception, it's only one type of sensory information that's going into your brain, that your brain, when your brain weighs the whole environment, it's using visual information, the sensory information from your tissues, uh, past memories, how you're feeling, like how well you slept the night before impacts how your brain perceives, thinks about what's going on in the situation. So all those things go in, you know, to, uh, we talk about this neuro matrix in the brain where it's all being sort of analyzed. And if it's, if the brain decides that it's 
sufficiently dangerous, then you have pain. And they've done all these, I mean, if people don't believe me, there's all kinds of experiments where they create potential tissue damage and people report pain, even though nothing's really happening to their tissue. They trick them, like they use rubber arms and mirrors and they use, so they use a mirror. It looks like it's your real arm, but they do something to the rubber arm, like put a knife on the person will say, ow, when it's not even their arm. So you can trick people. Uh, virtual reality glasses you can trick people so they're seeing something different than what they think they're seeing and you can create pain without actually causing any tissue damage yeah that um i i know exactly what you're talking about where they uh with that experiment with the hand and they either smash it with a hammer or you know cut it and and you see people react to it uh even though they also know it's not their own arm exactly they, yeah. they know that yeah. um yeah but their brain is still trying to figure that out because they're exactly. so used to seeing that arm right there all the time yep. the brain is is going to react that way really. they're great experiments of how important just like another sensory piece of sensory when your visual information comes in you almost can't stop your instincts what do you mean by that oh just like in those experiments if they close their yeah. eyes they wouldn't have pain, but because their eyes right. are open and they see something they think is their arm, even though, like you said, before the experiment, they know it's not going to be their arm. They just, it's like, you can't override that visual information. It's so powerful for some things that, you know, whereas if they close their eyes, obviously they have no pain then. Yeah. You know, one of the, uh, one of the questions I always have when it comes to, especially with pain, um, and in this, this PT world is, that transition from acute pain to chronic pain mm-hmm. um, because we see you know so many times how many times have you worked with you know patients and and you put them through you know your standard protocol of care and they get better mm-hmm. and then other people same exact symptoms same exact protocol same exercises mobility looks good strength looks good range of motion everything looks good still have the pain yeah uh, why you know why does that happen to some people where and then other people it's you know they're they're back on their feet yeah i think it's really complicated like you and i were talking about before the, the show here humans are complex and I think that stuff in many cases, I mean, there could be some factors you can't control. Like, you know, I think with pain, we'll, we're slowly learning more things about genetics and, you know, I think there is probably some of the predisposing factors there that you don't necessarily have control over. And, um, you know, but I think on the other side of that, for a lot of those people and often in clinics, the standard clinic, they're not doing, they're not testing people in terms of like their fear and anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. You know, I think those mental health factors, if we tested them in every clinic, like say tomorrow, every PT clinic in the country started testing those things, we'd probably have a better idea of like being able to predict who is going to go on to have more chronic symptoms and who wouldn't just based on that, those kind of variables. But I think that's a lot of what you see is that when it is steady, people who have heightened states of fear and anxiety about their pain, uh, that kind of ramps the nervous system up and people who have pain that goes on longer, you know, when you get past the three to six month window, most musculoskeletal tissues heal in that time frame. So that's when we start talking about the pain is happening longer than that. 
it's unlikely that it's because of some tissue damage that's still healing. It's that the nervous system gets sort of sensitized and ramped up. And it's almost like, you know, a lot of the textbooks will record, will um, compare your pain system to like an alarm on your car or your house. Mm-hmm. Right. And normally that pain system goes up or normally that alarm system goes off if somebody like breaks a window, but in a sensitized state where the nervous system sort of ramped up, you might get pain uh, like just when the wind blows across the house, like, you know, the wind blowing on the house shouldn't set off the alarm, but it's sort of ramped up and the, the pain perception threshold has dropped. So it takes this really small stimulus to kind of set off their pain. And so you're working on desensitizing that system. That's where this is really similar to psychiatric disorders like panic disorders and things and anxiety disorders where the person has some trigger that sets off their anxiety. And it's not like that there's anything in many cases really physically wrong with them. It's just that their belief that something is a potential, it's it's just like the pain definition, it's a potential threat, like potential harm. And that potential harm is significant enough that they end up having all these outputs, you know? And so you try to desensitize people to it. Like somebody has a fear of snakes. You try to gradually desensitize them to that. Just like we would in the rehab world with pain and movement. If a movement creates some sort of abnormal pain response, then we would try to break that movement down and gradually expose them to it to try and desensitize their movement and pain system. Yeah. It's thought of a lot in the same way now and, but easier said than done. I mean, that stuff, you and I, you know, the places that are doing a good job or a better job of managing chronic pain are facilities that have interdisciplinary care where there's PTs, you know, trainers like acupuncture, yoga, psychologists, um, you know, physicians. Like it's a whole comprehensive sort of holistic looking at that biopsychosocial, all the aspects of the person's health and not just, you know, does your knee go into valgus when you squat? Right. Yeah, because I've watched plenty of people squat like that for years and years and years and never have pain. Exactly. Exactly. And and they're like, what do you mean I'm not supposed to squat like this? I've been doing this my entire life. Totally. And I'm like, how how does that not cause you pain? That hurts me just looking at you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, that like, I think that right there, like, you know, when we watch somebody move and think, ooh, that would hurt, that right there is an example of our beliefs about movement. And right, something that, you know, a thought that you have in your head that maybe if you did have that kind of pain, it just, it's so interesting to see how people's beliefs, because we all have them, like what our beliefs are that are pushing us towards the direction of how we perceive our body and how we feel and, and pain. I think, you know, we're all so unique in that. That's what you're kind of trying to tease it out with people is what are their beliefs and then slowly kind of in a non-threatening way start to challenge those. And I, when I was a new PT, I used to just come in and tell people like, no, what that person told you is bullshit. You know, like, like, you know, and people don't, I, it took me a while to realize that when you do that to patients, if they really are deep in that belief, they'll just fight back. They will resist it and they won't change. So I'm much more likely now to let people just kind of talk through their beliefs and not challenge them and just plant seeds along the way. And then mm-hmm. when it feels like, like even today I was with this patient, I've been seen him for, it was probably like our eighth session. He was very, he had been really convinced that his biomechanics from another practitioner that biomechanics were explanation for all of his problems. 
you know, and I used to be like that too, but I, you know, I just, and I, I wasn't going to try and challenge it in the beginning. I just kind of validate and go along with it, kind of plant little seeds and just try to, and today we finally hit a tipping point where I think, you know, he was open to hearing a different way of thinking about it, you know, but it took a while early on in my career, I would have just challenged the person right away and maybe they wouldn't have ever come back to see me. So there's definitely some finesse and like sort of challenging people's beliefs. And this is talked a lot about now in the sort of more maybe cutting edge PT world. Yeah. I, I was curious, are they starting to, to teach any of this in part of a, a, a PT curriculum as far as like, Hey, it's not, believe it or not, it's not just squat form. Like there's, <laughs> yeah. there's more to it. There's like this thing called your brain and emotions yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that we need to start thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. I know some schools are getting better and I think partly it's because, uh, faculty they're getting, there are new faculty members who come in who are trained in it. And so I think it's just slowly, it's not the majority, but I think slowly like pain neuroscience and psychology of pain and things like that are becoming, there are certain schools where they're really doing a good job implementing it into their curriculums. But I think it's because somebody who's come in that they've hired who has that, like I, I can think of a couple of schools in like the Southern California region where we're at, where they've gotten better at that because they've been kind of, they have faculty who are paying attention to it and then bringing people in who have those backgrounds. So, but there's definitely a bunch of programs that are still just the old biomechanics anatomy and try to explain every pain with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, when you said too, it's uh, part of like the, the psychology and, and that desensitization, it's, Anyone that knows me and has listened to me in the past knows that I'm a huge proponent of mental health and, you know, beating that drum and taking care of that part of it, because so that's so much of what my issues are. And what my therapist tells me is that your my emotional response to emotional threats mm -hmm. I, are then perceived as reality and yeah. real threats on my life. And, and then my brain starts flipping its lid and going through all of those potential issues when no, none of that has even happened. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it makes so much sense when you start to uh, paint those similarities between, you know, hey, emotional response and, and all that stress and then the stress that it can put on your body. Um, when I was talking to, to one of my other therapist friends, she even said she noticed uh, patients will start to get better and better and better, and then they take a downturn. And when she's talking to them, they, she realizes, oh, your cat just died. Oh, you just went through a breakup. Oh, you just got fired from your job. It's, a, it's an emotional response, or it's a physical response to their emotional stress that they've been going through. Totally. I couldn't agree more. There's um, that neural matrix model I was talking about. You can see it play out in people all the time because you have different, the neural matrix is sort of like this way your nervous system, your brain is assessing things, but you have in that model, they'll talk about that there's emotional inputs, there's sensory inputs, and uh, what's the other one? Oh, I, I think they, oh, they, what are they, oh, gosh, I'm forgetting the third one. Anyways, you have these sensory kind of inputs. But then the outputs can be things like pain, movement, other kind of emotional endocrine type responses. And 
I mean, most of us think, well, if you have some emotional, if you have some sort of input that's stressful, that, you know, some, you see something or hear something that you're reacting to that people will have this sort of more stressful response, but another type of output is pain, you know? And Mm -hmm. I mean, I have experienced this anecdotally, just personally a ton. I have this one pain area in the right side of my lower thoracic spine that uh, started back in, I think probably around 2011 or 12. And I initially had a tissue injury. I hurt a rib in jujitsu. And so I had this initial kind of rib pain and that healed. And years later now, I noticed that the primary trigger for that is psychological stress. So like mm-hmm. if I get stressed out, that spot hurts back there. It's like the size of a quarter. And then it will be exacerbated by things that mechanically load it. So like if it's already hurting and then I go and do like deadlifts or, um, you know, or like I'm doing a lot of dishes or something where I'm bent over and my spinal extensors are kind of working, it will get flared up more. But the initial trigger by far, the strongest trigger is something I'm thinking that's stressful and then that will start hurting. And so it's this, it's interesting to see, you know, how, inputs and outputs there can be kind of this mismatch sometimes and how your thoughts and emotions can manifest physically yeah um it's funny you say that because right as you said that i know the light bulb went off on my head i was like oh yeah that that makes sense right it, i i've had low back issues for since before i i met you for the first time right so i've been going on 15 years of on and on and off low back issues and now I'm starting to realize, hey, yeah, some of the times when it hurts the worst or when I'm going through some of the more emotionally stressful times, right? And yep. so I'm wondering, because I think some people probably, their light bulbs also went off too, realizing they have the same issue. What are some good practical steps people can take when they finally start to realize that, hey, okay, I here's the emotional stress input, here's my pain output this is what really hurts. What, what steps should I take in order to correct some of that and and help myself out? Yeah. it's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think the overall theme is try to figure out how to decrease threat, like overall threat to yourself as an organism. So Mm -hmm. uh, some of that can be like the very basic physical rehab things that you might've learned by going to PT. Like for me, I will still spend some time foam rolling and kind of massaging that area where it hurts the ball. Like I'll do that stuff and it helps relieve that. And that makes me feel a little bit better. But then I realized that things that uh, also really help me are like just getting out in nature. Like I've been doing a lot of trail running during COVID, like really picking this up because I've been more stressed out. That thing seems to hurt all the time. But when I get out, and uh, get out and exercise like just for me personally this helps reduce threat like being in nature is really helpful for me and i think there's studies on it it seems to help a lot of people but yeah i think just like getting out in the natural world and exercising at the same time i mean we have all kinds of research showing that cardiovascular exercise like running reduces systemic inflammation you know so i think those i whatever factor is changing it i kind of think about like well, maybe I not only, so many of these conditions have an inflammatory component at their root. So I think, you know, thinking about maybe it means kind of trying to cut some of the pro-inflammatory stuff in your diet out and kind of clean up your diet, you know, Mm -hmm. and 
think about other kind of mental health things. Maybe for some people, it means having an app that takes you through like guided kind of meditations or something. Uh, and then everybody talks about it, like build these things into your day. And you hear people say that and you're like, oh yeah, I have times in my day that are like that. And really you have to like write it down or plan it out. I think people have to really make an effort to like, yeah, I'm going to, at this time of the day, I have an opening here. I'm going to spend 20 minutes doing some sort of guided meditation thing and just really try to slow your system down. I think everyone's systems are so ramped up and they don't even realize it until they sit and are trying to, are trying to be still that, you know, as an example, just to, I learned a lot about this. I took my family and moved to, we moved to Bali earlier this year. And oh really? Yeah, before COVID, we were living in Bali, and, and you know, and in a lot of those countries of Bali, especially because they're Hindu, and I think just their religion, they are very good about being present and still. And I think there's a lot of peace that comes from that. And mm-hmm. for me, it was really helpful to go there. We came back early because of COVID, but in the time we were there, it was really gave me some perspective on slowing down and being still and present. And I realized how much. I don't pay attention to the things that are happening around me because I'm like you said, I'm so often thinking about the future and stressing about what might happen, even though most of those things never happen. But I think this is a big part of our culture and why so many people have these lingering pain issues because their system is feeling threatened all the time. It's like, we're not getting chased by lions anymore, but we've created those kind of psychological stressors with things that really aren't going to harm us, but we're, our old animal system is responding in that way of trying to protect us from things that really aren't mostly harmful, but we have our basic sort of, you know, that basic uh, animal part of our brain is still responding to protect us in the same way. So you've got to, I think some of those things really can be helpful get out in nature, try to exercise, you know, 25 to 30 minutes every day, moderate to biggest exercise, get that aerobic kind of exercise, get, you know, whatever that's doing in your system is dropping inflammation or just the mental health aspect. If there's some studies showing that even blood flow to your frontal lobe of your brain, which is your judgment and emotional area improves, increases when you die uh, with cardiovascular exercise. So maybe increasing blood flow to that part of your brain helps you think better and helps you rationalize better. You know, I mean, there's lots of potential explanations, but I think find the thing that works for you. And I think for a lot of people in pain, really make time for trying to kind of ramp your whole system down. Yeah. And, you know, just, it's that, you know, I think a lot of people talk about some kind of having me time and focusing on yourself, but I think we all kind of talk about it and don't do it. And I also think now too, uh, it, with COVID and, and the shutdowns, it's it's even harder to get that me time. Because I know for me, uh, pre-COVID, some of my me time was just driving home from work, right? Mm-hmm. And just no radio, just silence, uh, taking 15, 20 minutes to get home. But now that commute isn't there, right? And uh, even on days pre-COVID when I would work from home, right? Uh, my wife was typically out of the house and at her job. So I was by myself. I had that me time. Yeah. Now it's been 10 months of, I mean, we live in 900 square feet. There's only so many places for us to go. Yeah. <laughs> so there's not, there's not many places you can hide, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, 
It's so true. I mean, we were talking about before, I'm so lucky to, we're both, we're in Southern California. So it's lucky to, we're lucky that it's not cold and you can go outside and, but I mean, I have friends who are in New York city in apartments and like you said, they're, you're in a small space and you don't have somewhere to go. And then there's a shutdown. I mean, and you have people, everybody's on top of each other all the time in terms of your family. You never really get a break. And I mean, I, I was with you, I would drive in the car and sometimes I could have a podcast on or just silence. And that was, I didn't realize it, but that was sort of a way for me to kind of almost be present and sort of calm my brain down a little bit. And, you know, I, and maybe it honestly, in some of those situations, maybe it means people go and lock themselves in a bathroom and turn the lights off and have something that they, I mean, I have an app that I use that kind of plays different sounds and you're supposed to kind of listen to it and follow it. And it does help me get out of those thoughts. I have to really focus on what I'm hearing. And I think sometimes that can be helpful too. You have all these inputs into your brain, just focus on one, like just try to really consciously only pay attention to what you can hear, you know, right. or only pay attention. I know mean, most of the time people are closing their eyes, but I think hearing is a good one. Close your eyes and only think about what you can hear and try to do that for 10 or 15 minutes and let thoughts just try not to focus on thoughts, just what you can hear. And everybody, I mean, we all sit and thoughts come in and you perseverate on them and spin them and think about them. But you know, another really interesting one, I follow a guy who's a neuroscientist at Stanford. His name's Andrew Huberman, and he runs the neuroscience lab at Stanford. He studies uh, a lot on how our visual in, uh, system impacts like our neuroscience. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that they, I don't know if it's his lab that studied it necessarily or someone else, but one of the ways you can really reduce threat, which is interesting, is that when you go for a walk in a safe place, your eyes naturally do this horizontal gaze shifting kind of thing. And they've shown that doing that in a safe place calms down your amygdala and some of your fear centers. Hmm. So just going for a walk and not even having to think about your vision will just naturally do that. But going for a walk for 20, 30 minutes can be a way that your visual system, you know, cause right. Your retina is just a, an extension of your brain. So you know, having that, the, the nerves that go in your eyes, an extension, those cranial nerves, an extension of your brain. So you can, it seems like just walking and doing that can kind of calm down if you're having a lot of anxiety and fear about the future or whatever, just going for a walk can be a good way to do that. Um, but some of that neuro, it's kind of like hacks for your, your nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, uh, it's funny that you bring that up because the first thing that I thought in my head is, I'm going to have to start going for walks now without my dog because naturally when I have my dog, what I'm constantly searching for are the threats of other dogs Yeah. Uh, because my dog doesn't get along with other dogs. So yeah. it's not a stress-free walk. It actually probably increases my stress. Yeah. Um, yeah if anything. Sure. And so that's good for, I'm glad you told me that because yeah. now I'm like, no, sorry, bud. We're, <laughs> I'm going to have to go by myself. Yeah. Also, too, yeah. I've I've noticed too uh, when you brought up decreasing uh, some of the stuff from your diet to mm. to decrease that inflammation. I have recently uh, just cut out all the gluten in my diet, and, and I I didn't even really realize all the uh, intestinal distress I was having with the gluten in my diet until yeah. I cut it out. Yeah. And it is night. It, it's night and day. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's always interesting. Experiment. I mean, yeah. I mean, you can get, so I think nutrition is one of those areas that's totally overlooked too with pain and, uh, it's slowly kind of another cutting edge probably kind of thing for pain and rehab stuff. But, uh, there's a couple of nutritionists, evidence-based nutritionists that I really like to follow on 
social media. And it's, um, you know, I think, you know, we're all different. Like we all probably have a unique sort of nutritional profile that's best for our systems. And fortunately there's not a super great way or that's easily accessible to test yourself. It seems like at this point, I think that'll keep getting better, but like you're saying, I mean, I think trying to like an experiment, like cut one thing out and see what it does, you know, whether, you know, you hear a lot of people have problems with dairy. A lot of people have problems with gluten. It's like, whatever that is, maybe just reducing your sugar to half its normal intake. I don't think people don't realize how much sugar is in everything that they buy, you know? So it's, um, it is kind of fun to play with those variables and see how you feel. Um, but it's a big, it's a big component that I think is only recently starting to get more attention in the pain world. Yeah. I I've known for a while, probably since I was about 16 or 17 that I didn't do well with dairy. Mm -hmm. I've cut that out for a while. And then it seems as I've gotten older, gluten has really been that, that issue for me, uh, which sucks because I mean, you go to the grocery store, you really start to realize like there's gluten and dairy in everything. It's a lot. And then you start, I've always been kind of conscious of added sugars, you know, looking at that stuff. And I mean, it, it seems like in a supermarket, if you cut out dairy, gluten, and you know, reduced sugars, I could fit it into half of an aisle. Oh yeah, out of the, out of the entire supermarket. Yeah, and then if you add somebody's vegetarian on top of it or something, you're just really whittling down how much the options. I mean, you almost, I would, you know, it's almost like the rule of thumb is just eat things that have to be in your fridge and go bad. You know, don't. Right don't eat stuff that can sit in the cupboard. Cause that stuff usually has added junk to it that, you know, probably isn't, you know, it's just not what you want the majority of your calories to come from. Yeah. One of the other uh, experiments that I just recently started is I bought myself a sauna uh-huh, yeah. um, and I've been sitting in the sauna for probably half hour, 40 minutes a day. Um, and I feel, you know, I, I don't know if you've, looked at much at sauna research but uh dr Rhonda patrick if you ever listen to her she is a huge sauna proponent heat shock proteins talking about reducing inflammation um and and i feel like it's been a a good thing for my recovery um because that's one of the other things that i've noticed um and i was wondering if you had any insight to this because I, i i know you and i know that you train a lot and you train regularly uh, but one of the things that I've noticed is that my training today looks very different than my training five years ago, 10 years ago, mainly because of the uh, recovery periods, right? I, I just can't recover the way that I used to. You know, when I was 18, I would just yeah. go, eat, go eat a hoagie and then go squat and do it again the next day. And exactly. It didn't matter. I never got sore. I never got tired. Uh, but now I'm noticing that if I don't take a lot of time to really try to flip myself from that sympathetic nervous system into the parasympathetic, calm the nervous system down, take care of the inflammation, take care of the um, recovery, training for the next two days, three days sometimes can really just be thrown out of whack. So uh, yeah. I was wondering if you know anything from like a, a, a scientific backed side uh, or just even your own personal experience of how you can uh, work to work on your recovery, especially as you become an, an, 
an older athlete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I think this is a common theme you hear everyone like in their mid thirties, it seems like their early thirties, something like that kind of shifting to noticing that there takes them longer to recover. It's like, they can't just go do every workout day stacked together. And like you could when you're, you know, a teenager and just never, I don't even remember even being sore as a teenager, but um, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but you know, I think, uh, in the sauna stuff, I think those kind of thermal type modalities, I I've listened to like Joe Rogan and Rhonda Patrick talk about that. And I haven't read that research a ton myself. I kind of trust, I kind of just listen to those people who do more of it, but, uh, right. who study that more, but I think there is something cool that I haven't had a chance to try. I've done more cold stuff like cryo and ice baths and things like that. And I haven't done it regularly for a recovery thing, so I can't really say whether or not it would change. It has a big impact on uh, recovery, and I haven't read that research enough to say. But uh, I have noticed, you know, when we were talking about kind of the nervous system threat. Anecdotally, I have noticed that if I'm kind of stressed and I uh, jump in cold water, that instant sort of adrenaline dump from the cold water does seem to change how I'm thinking about things, you know, and I've heard other people talk about that, that that can be a way to like kind of a shock to your nervous system. And it can kind of almost jumpstart you out of different emotional and psychological states. And again, I, you know, it's just anecdotal and I'm always, I always try to be careful with anecdotal stuff because, you know, it's just good to have larger studies that control for bias and stuff. But, um, you know, on, in terms of kind of my end, in terms of like the research I would look at, I think it is true that as people get older, your musculoskeletal tissues do take more time to recover and they lose some of their characteristics. You know, maybe they become stiffer or lose some elasticity and some of those elements change like collagen. You know, I think, you know, some of these things can change as you get older and already know that from various studies. And so maybe that's part of what, uh, you know, part of what goes into that delayed kind of recovery response. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for people to be honest with themselves and really pay attention to their training to rest kind of ratios. And, you know, for me, I'm still trying to train every day, but I think I'm a little bit more, I put more conscious attention into how I split up what I do. Yeah. You know, so maybe that means people are doing like, uh, like for me, a lot of times I like doing, I still like doing a lot of resistance training, weight training, cause it has really probably the best evidence for protecting your musculoskeletal system. But you know, like for me, I almost kind of do resistance training sessions that are almost like a bodybuilder in a way, but I mm-hmm. find that it's the best way for me to break up muscle groups and be able to, I can continue training each day. And I don't go as heavy as I used to back in the day. I just don't think is it really going to improve your function that much? I don't think so. You know, so I don't go crazy heavy and like, I might, I kind of like breaking things up into pushing and pulling. And so I like doing like my push, like I'll do quads and glutes one day and chest and, you know, with that. And then I'll do more like pull-ups and curls and hamstrings on another day. And I usually do abs kind of most days, but I just find that in a way, sometimes those bodybuilder splits are a good way when you know your recovery is going to take longer, that it could be a nice way to kind of mix things up. So you have those areas have time to recover. You don't feel like you're just sitting sedentary. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, 
I've been thinking about honestly getting back more to those bodybuilder splits because I, I got away from them for a long time, you know, in my mind thinking, well, I'm not a bodybuilder. Why would I do those splits? But then as you start to think about recovery and how your body's recovering, like, well, why are, why are bodybuilders splitting, splitting it up? Oh, it's because Arnold did 10,000 squats yesterday. Exactly. He needs yes. five days to, to recover. I get it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, and now it's not necessarily, I'm not going to do 10,000 squats, right? With a million pounds, but my body's just not going to recover the same way that it did. And so getting back to that, but I have uh, uh, switched to, I, I personally, I switched a lot to resistance bands, mm-hmm. um, mainly because in the height of COVID, you just couldn't buy a dumbbell anywhere. So <laughs> I like, well, what, what can I buy? And so uh, I, I, I switched a, a lot of it to the resistance band training and i've the the benefit that i've noticed with resistance bands and it's probably the same thing with like trx but it's your ability to to throttle up or throttle down resistance mid sets without Uh taking breaks right and so you can really get in tune like you said listen to your body and get in tune during your training instead of just going back to my 18 year old self of well, there's 200 pounds on this bench press and I better lift it. Exactly. Yeah. That is the cool thing about bands that you can sort of alter that resistance really quickly by just moving. Whereas when you've got a barbell, it's just, it, it's like too much effort to take plates off and change it. People are just, it's just easier to stick at the same load. And so because of that isotonic nature, you can't really, it's harder mid set to make adjustments. You know, people will just push through stuff and you know, I mean, way more people, you don't hear very many people get injured with bands uh, as compared to heavy barbell lifts. So, no. it, uh, and there's so much to be said for single, single limb lifting, like, especially when it comes to the legs. I mean, I do so much and I think it's probably coming from martial arts and gymnastics back. I like body weight stuff and I do a lot with the dumbbells, but I, you know, single leg squats, single leg deadlift, you know, I mean, there's so many, and I post a lot, I do a lot of posts with home training that are single leg because single leg hip thrust, like you can do so much single leg and you don't need real heavy load. And I mean, you meet the majority of people are not very good at single leg squats and other single leg. They just, they're challenging. And, you know, and if you are really good at it and then adding a dumbbell to it or doing more reps or it just isn't that hard to get fatigued with it. Yeah. Yeah. Throwing your entire body weight onto one leg while you're trying to balance. Um, it, it not only is it challenging physically, but also from like a sensory standpoint and, uh, attention, right. You really have to be locked in to what you're doing or else it's not going to work. Yeah. You know, on that recovery side of things, I don't personally do a lot of foam rolling and um, things like that. I, you know, that is kind of became like the cool trend in rehab for a while, right? Like all this prehab rehab stuff was a revolved around foam rolling and mobility work and things like that. And I just, uh, I don't think you have to make it that complicated. I think if you're sore, just do an active recovery thing, like go for a walk. Like if you did legs yesterday and your legs are destroyed and you need some time to recover, well, you probably don't want to go hiking or do lift your legs again, but doing like a walk or a, you know, something light like that. And sometimes maybe even hiking, if it's not the grades, not really intense and you just need to, I think people get practitioners have made it overcomplicated and like, really, you just need to get the blood flowing a little bit. I mean, that blood flow is probably the best recovery tool for the musculoskeletal system, just some light aerobic activity. 
you know, that right. does a lot to help flush, just flushes the tissue. So yeah, you know, it doesn't have to be a crazy complex I, thing. Um, it's funny you brought up foam rolling and how that was the uh, kind of like flavor of, of the day uh, a couple years ago in the PT world. Now it seems the flavor of the week is the uh, the percussion guns, yeah, the, totally. the Theraguns. What are your What are your thoughts on them? I'll tell you what. Person, I have one. I love the thing. Uh-huh. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> whether it's a placebo effect or whether it's actually working, I can care less. You take that thing in a sauna and, and hit your your quads with it. It's it's heaven on earth. Yeah. But um, what uh, what are your perceptions on it, especially from a physical therapy standpoint, scientific standpoint? Yeah, man. I it, look. I this stuff is so subjective. Like pain is so is super subjective. So I'm never gonna sit here and say like nobody should use a massage gun or everybody should get a massage gun. I think it just. I always tell people if things aren't super expensive, like they're not super hard on your wallet and they're not invasive, sure try it. Like if you want to try it, I don't care. Like try right. it. Like I had a massage gun. It didn't do crap for me, so I gave it away. So I just like. But that's how I perceive. Like I just don't really. It didn't. And maybe it's just that I don't have an injury that was great for it or some symptom or something, but like some people swear by them and love them. And so I'm not going to tell that person like, well, because the thing with pain is it's super complex and a little sensory stimulus like that, even if it's not, you know, we used to think like foam rolling and all these things were changing your tissue. And so, you know, everyone used to think rolling your IT band made it more flexible and different things. And really the research has shown that's not true, but it is giving a novel input into your nervous system. And sometimes that novel input, that's all I'm doing with manual therapy is giving an input into someone's sensory system. It's just a different sensory input. So, and that can change pain. So if a massage gun vibration, like vibration has a bunch of research. I mean, you know, I used to do red cord and teach, like we did all this suspension training with vibration and vibration does interesting things to the nervous system. And I think the massage guns, you got massage and you put vibration on top of it. It's just a novel input. And if it's, it helps you great. Like I, a lot of people love those things. I mean, I do giveaways of them on my page because people like them so much. Yeah. So I have nothing against them. It just, to me, it's just another sensory input tool and it's great because you don't need someone else to do it to you in a lot of cases. So it's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that thought process of like, listen, if it's not going to break the bank and you want to try it, give it, give it a go. Yeah. 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 What do you have to lose at that point? Exactly. I mean, the things, those things only annoy me when there's someone else convincing them that it's doing something that it's highly unlikely. It's not like when practitioners, like if some practitioner, if I heard someone came up to me and they said, yeah, I got this there again. Cause you know, my so-and-so practitioner told me that it would uh, break up all the adhesions in my fascia. Like when there's that kind of BS, then it annoys me. But if it's just someone, it's just the simple thing of like, Hey, just give it a try. Maybe it, maybe it does something for you. It's giving input into your system. Just I, it, those biomechanical explanations, especially as I've gotten more into pain when people are very, give these really detailed biomechanical anatomical things that are highly unlikely based on the research that stuff annoys me when practitioners put those kind of thought viruses in people's heads. I just, mm. that, that's the stuff that drives me crazy. Um, so why do you think, uh, here, here's a, from a, from a practitioner standpoint, why do you think so many practitioners get that? Cause in order for a practitioner to put that into a patient's head, it has to be in their head, right? Like no, in my opinion, 
not many people are going to push a thought process if they don't truly, truly believe it. So how are, how are practitioners becoming so misinformed on, in their field? Well, I mean, I think all the majority of the education revolves around very mechanical linkages with pain. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, like you said, really honestly do believe that, like, I mean, we all want something to be tangible and anatomy and biomechanics is sort of tangible. At least you feel like you can be sort of certain and you can mechanically explain how something is causing something else to happen. It, you know, the uncertainty of pain, I don't think people people don't like to hang out in that, you know, I mean, even patients don't like to know that something, a lot of people don't like to know that the answer is not super clear cut because uncertainty sometimes makes people feel more threatened. And, you know, so I think a lot of practitioners like the idea that it does feel sort of gratifying to be able to like, be like, you have this pain and it's because you're doing this movement thing and it's putting this stress on the tissue in this mechanical way. And that's causing your symptoms. I mean, it is nice. And sometimes pain does line up that way. You know, sometimes people have yeah. things that are very physical where their physical tissue seems to really be the driving factor. But I think there's that side of it. I think a lot of practitioners have just been educated that way. And so I was educated that way, uh, very biomechanical. Uh, so I explained things that way and it was nice for a period of time until I realized that like, like you said, I would do the same biomechanical thing for the same things and people, some people then get better. So it just didn't explain everyone. Yeah. Uh, And I think the other side of it is that honestly, I think every practitioner has probably realized like you'd be kind of a dummy if you didn't see this pattern that if I tell this person this thing, they will have to come back to see me again. And right. that will help my business if they keep coming back. So there's always a temptation for practitioners to say something that gets that person to come back and explaining pain in a very anatomical biomechanical way. And especially if you're linking in how your hands are doing something to that and you can't replicate it outside of the session, that's really good for business. So, you know, I, it's temp, it's a temptation for everyone that's, seeing people with pain and so but it's just the it's dishonest i mean like good practitioners are ones that are helping people learn how to self-manage and not be dependent on that care yeah i was uh as you were talking about um you know for especially for patients sometimes it's really nice hearing like oh your pain is caused because of this movement pattern that isn't right and so if we correct the movement pattern you'll be out of pain and i almost thought automatically is um maybe that's true or not true from a from like a structural standpoint but it 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 almost makes sense where if you kind of tell someone that and then they can see their movement pattern get better Mm. they might then perceive that they are out of pain right yeah so it, it might play to some of their emotional response to their pain of seeing, oh yeah, I, I squat better. You know, I'm not going into valgus with my knee anymore. Therefore, my knee doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. Whether it was that tissue damage or not, tissue damage, right? It's yeah, chicken it's, or egg type thing. Totally, it's so true too. That the, the one of the things we always talk about is that the hard thing about pain is that it's not that just one thing works for it. Lots of things change pain. So. 
the hard thing is, is that if somebody goes in to have something done, like say they go in and the person does a bunch of kinesio taping on them, you know, and their pain gets better. Well then, and say that person says, well, you have this biomechanical thing, the kinesio tape is going to hold you here and that will make your pain better. If their pain actually gets better, then that narrative is true. Right. You know, and so people are walking around and that's why, you know, pain is complex. So lots of things can change it. And if somebody gives you a particular narrative and your pain got better, well, then you're going to go forward from there thinking, well, like we would all do that. Like I had this thing and it got better with this thing and this is how they explained it. So that has to be true. Like people don't, it's this correlation causation thing. And most average consumers don't understand how, you know, don't understand how complex pain is. And so they will just make this direct connection. And, you know, that makes it, it just makes things challenging if you're the next person in the line and they've had some setback or they have, you know, that thing flares up again and they want you to just do ultrasound on the ultrasound is what fixed it before. Right. You know, so it's, that's where challenging those beliefs is hard and getting people and you know, honestly, when people come to see me, if there does seem like there's some tissue component, I might in the beginning kind of talk more about that and conversation about that tissue thing. Cause at least it gives them something to blame it on for a little bit. And then I am slowly planting and trying to hear their story. Cause a lot of those other things in life that it might be associated with the pain, people don't always tell you right away. Mm-hmm. So as those things kind of slowly come out, I'm always trying to help the person be more aware of how other factors in their life could be a part of their symptoms, especially if the symptoms have been there for a while. Yeah. But it takes a while for people to get those seeds planted and then to really reflect on it in their life. And some people just are more resistant to it, you know? Yeah. So, you know, there's some, yeah, there's a lot of people that are like, just fix me and they don't want to talk about any of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Which is, uh, <laughs> they're, they're going to have a hard time getting better when they don't want to be active in their you know. Yeah, that was, again, one of the things that uh, what I talked about with one of my first guests was she's actually seen a lot of uh, great responses in this telehealth world because the patient has so much more self-efficacy in their healing, whereas before uh, they... I think practitioners and patients both believed that someone was going to walk through the door you have hands sent down from the heavens that are then going to place healing powers on someone and that patient doesn't have to do anything. We're just going to like automatically heal them when the reality is, is it's going to take a lot of work from that person in particular um, in order to, to go down the path of their own recovery. Right. It's like, yeah, no one's, uh, you know, release is going to fix everything and, and yeah. change everything for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is definitely a positive of all this is that it's sort of forced, it forced away the passive care. So, yeah. you know, you can't do modalities, you can't massage mode people, you can't touch them. So it only is active interventions and education, which it's, I mean, people definitely get better, but it's like the ones who are, de- are going to get better are the ones who are willing to probably they're the ones who are signing up for the virtual consults. Cause you have to go into that knowing, well, the person can't touch me. So, you know, I think it, it is kind of cool to see and people do get better. It's uh, 
it's kind of a cool experiment to see the passive things kind of go away and what can people do just with, you know, just guiding them. It's almost like being more of a lifestyle coach and, and or I shouldn't say lifestyle, but it's kind of like, you know, it's really more of a, it's sort of like a, you know, a counselor or kind of a coach, you know, where you're not, where so many PTs put their hands on people. This is kind of hands off and just guiding people. Yeah. You know, it's like being a pain guide or a pain coach or something. And it's, there have been some other kind of well-known researchers and practitioners out there who kind of hypothesize that that's where this profession would go years from now is that it would be more of a kind of coaching type of profession and less of mm-hmm. putting your hands on people. Yeah. It, so, and it makes, it makes all the world a sense too. And I was even saying from a, from a patient standpoint, uh, from, you know, not seeing a physical therapist during this, but, you know, other doctor visits doing it telehealth, man, I, I don't ever want to go back to the doctor from, uh, <laughs> just from a, a time management standpoint, yeah. I don't have to jump in the car, you know, at going to the, the regular doctor for, for a yearly checkup. I mean, it, yeah. it would take two hours out of my day and now I can get it done in 20 minutes. Yeah. Never leave my couch. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you could just like send blood in and do things like that. And like, I mean, there's so many people doing that stuff now. It's, there's a, it, you can kind of really narrow the list down on how many things you'd actually have to be in person to have that practitioner touch you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool. It'll be cool to see uh, how the world, like when, uh, you know, all this is kind of resolved, how much of this stuff stays you know, how much it changes and how much sort of online virtual stuff continues after that. Yeah. And that was one of my other questions for you is because, and like we were saying before is uh, I've always seen you as, as being on the cutting edge of a lot of the different trends because you were bringing in, you know, the social media, you were bringing in, uh, you know, the, the test treat train model, um, into your practice. Um, and you were doing this years and years and years ago. So I, I think COVID probably accelerated a lot of things on the way the profession was probably going to go in general. Uh, but where do you really see it going, especially, and this might, this is really more of a question that I think uh, people that are in students in college that are thinking about getting into this profession are probably asking themselves mm-hmm. and they're wondering, what am is this something that I still want to go into, you know, and and spend three four years getting this doctoral level degree, when everything is going to change, you know, wh- what do you see happening? Yeah, it's an interesting question and one that I when I was teaching at Westmont, you know, those are all kinesiology students and trying to kind of advise them through making those future decisions because look, PT school is expensive too and. You know, it's, and then when you think about, you know, the major, the evidence, the best evidence for care revolves around education and exercise. Well, you could make the argument that maybe you're best off just educating yourself, like grabbing a bunch of textbooks, reading and staying in a training type of field. Like you get your CSCS and, you know, it's hard to, in those fields to market yourself as someone who helps someone with pain. But at the end of the day, if you're helping people move better and get stronger, you are, we're all in the same, we're all in the same kind of field. Basically it's like 
this continuum of movement and physios just happen to be in the area of the continuum where people are injured and functioning at a lower level. So, right. We're all kind of working on the same goals. Um, you know, I think the profession will probably, there's things where, you know, I think the psychology side of pain and rehab is going to be kind of an area that is already picking up and getting a lot more attention. But I think that is going to be PT. There's a big part of PT that's talk therapy, you know? So I think as uh, people who are looking at going this direction, that's a big thing to consider. And look, I mean, therapy has a lot of different settings. So if you're in the hospital and acute care, that's this stuff kind of applies more to outpatient ortho kind of stuff where I've been and, um, you know, sports medicine and things like that. But, you know, I think like the psychological side is going to become a much bigger factor for rehab people to be talking with patients about and addressing nutrition is going to become more and more of a bigger factor. Uh, and then other just general like health and wellness things, like you were kind of talking about at the beginning, like just thinking about, you know, kind of coaching people on sleep habits and right. Like some of you talking about recovery, like sleep's probably way more important than anything I would do with my hands or <laughs> with a phone right. remote for some patient, you know? So, I mean, there's all this data now on insufficient sleep and injury risk and things. So I think uh, the profession will kind of become more and more holistic and go more of that coaching kind of direction, which, you know, in a world of like a pandemic, it's great if you can make that transition and be more of that person uh, and help. And I think also the strength and conditioning and training side, like PTs need Mm -hmm. to know that better. And there's so many that don't. And you can't be a PT and just not have any experience lifting weights or exercising. Like it's just, people don't want to listen to you if you don't have that background. Yeah. I don't know. So much of so many of the people that you see, especially in that orthopedic outpatient, you know, if they're coming to you from sport injury, uh, you better be able to get them back into a weight room because, uh, I will tell you right now, it's either they're coming, they're going back into a weight room under your direction or under their high school football coach's direction. And the football coaches yeah. that I've had in the past <laughs> they didn't give me some of the best direction. No, it's for sure. It's just a reality. So if you're going to really be good and, and, you know, help people with their health, enhance their function and health the best you can, then I, to me, every ortho sports medicine PT should have, should do like the CSCS and go through a strength and conditioning, like learn that stuff because it just, way too many so many patients complain about that pt only took them to this point and they weren't didn't really feel like they were maximized and they're just kind of dropped and cut off by insurance i mean there's just all kinds of different problems but we have to rehab practitioners need to be better at helping people cross that whole cross over into getting back to like the weight room and higher levels of performance and not have people just feel like they're kind of dropped off and because they're going to go back there like you said and if they're going back there without any guidance, their risk of being injured again is way higher. Yeah. So, you know, I think those things like nutrition, strength and conditioning, and probably the psychological side of rehab are probably the big three that will, you know, if people have an interest, I would never change the path I went through, even though it was more expensive, you know, to go to PT school and do this, that 
the sort of foundational knowledge I feel like I have as a PT combined with that exercise science and information I had as doing training, bringing those together. Um, if you're willing to be creative and, you know, kind of create your own, it, it just gives you the tools to kind of create your own profession in a way. And, you know, I left the, and, you know, living in an area that supports it helps too, but, uh, you know, I kind of left that insurance model. I was only in it for two years. So, and then I left and kind of went other directions. And I think those two together, those kind of two backgrounds were really helpful. And, you know, cause if you're just the straight, hardcore clinical only PT who has no real strong exercise component, it's really hard to create a kind of cash pay business because people, you just don't, you look like the straightforward PT and everyone associates that with insurance. And so you kind of, and so not only does it help with business, if you have kind of that training background, you can operate more like a trainer. Um, but it also is where the evidence is because exercise and education has the best evidence anyway. So you're only, you're doing people the best, you're doing the best for them because you're helping them incorporate active things into their life that are going to keep them healthy for the long term. manual therapy, all these modalities have short-term evidence. So you just, the profession, I think that's the, probably the biggest thing that the professional become way more active. PT physios are going to look like strength and conditioning coaches in a way. Yeah. It's going to, so it's really just a difference in maybe how they talk and educate. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head is that you're helping your patients uh, with more of that long-term holistic health approach, because also, uh, you know, from a consumer standpoint, uh, we want that single source resource. We want the person that can help with hands-on modality if we need it, but also give us the nutrition guidance that we need and give us the, uh, you know, psychology standpoint. Like, uh, you know, if we can get it all from one person that we build a relationship with and trust, we can then implement a lot more of that stuff into our own lives as opposed to, trying to go to seven different people and you have a bunch of different competing thoughts and, you know, and, and then it's, we just get back into the world of well, who do I listen to? Right. And it's mm -hmm. like, and that's unfortunately one of the, on the flip side of, you know, the cool part about social media, like we were saying in the beginning is that I do get to share a lot of the, Hey, this is good evidence backed research, good stuff to listen to but a general consumer doesn't might not know what is and what isn't. And so there's, if you're just flooded with so much information, it's like, where, where do I go? And, and who do I listen to? Who's right? Who's wrong? It's challenging yeah. Yeah. to say the least. For sure. Yeah. Somebody just had a tool set to kind of sift through that. Cause you can, you're reading stuff and seeing things and there's so much nocebic kind of like the opposite of the placebo. I mean, there's so much messaging on social media that could be harmful to someone's health, you know? So it's, that's a lot of the stuff, but probably most of the people that I see in the PT world are, are not about that. They're trying to put out messages that help people that are positive for someone's health and how they view their body. But there's for sure some people that, just put out just stuff that's going to be, it's going to negatively influence how someone thinks about their body and any pain they have and lead them down these paths that just are going to be hard to recover from. And that's unfortunate, but 
Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, it's nice. I think overall it's positive to have all that information out there and this like kind of globalization that has happened uh, with technology. Um, but uh, there's for sure downsides to it too. I mean, all you can do, I guess, is just keep up the good fight and keep putting messages out there. And hopefully it, hopefully there's kind of a slow, I think that's been happening in PT and it's the mindset and understanding of like pain, for instance, is tipping in a positive direction. There's been enough people putting out the right messages that it's starting to tip how the public thinks about things. Yeah. You know, or at least how the profession thinks about things. Maybe it hasn't gotten to the public, but it's at least tipping the profession in a better direction, I think. Yeah. But then that'll then trickle down, uh, at least in, in theory, to the general public. Yeah. Right? Hopefully, um, yeah. What, because uh, I know one of the other things that we were talking about before we even started, or maybe it was after we started recording, but um, I, I know you, you travel the world a lot, or at least you did pre-COVID. Yeah. What is, uh, from a global standpoint, what is the perception with, pain and physical therapy and movement because we see um you know again getting back to like oh i perceive i i look at someone and i perceive that pain uh we look at you know people from like asian cultures that sit on the floor or in those deep squats and you know my i already know my my parents go oh how does that not kill their knees how does that not yeah. hurt their knees and their ankles yeah. and their back um but that's just their way of life. And so have you noticed like a big difference in the, I guess, general perception of pain and movement and exercise from all your travels? Yeah. I mean, it's not a thing that I have like actively asked people about like locals in different places. I mean, with language barriers, it's always hard to get that deep into something yeah. like that. But uh, I think observationally, like you said, you know, especially people, in those Asian cult, I mean, people just that are outside the Western cult say they have, I think, different, for sure, different sort of perceptions on what's good or bad about your body. And, you know, even what pain means, you know, some, a lot of, there are lots of different cultures, I think, that have a healthier view of pain and are kind of thinking about maybe what it's telling you. And I think they have a, are, are in a, they have a better awareness of, or are maybe more willing to listen to those kind of messages and try to figure out what that means in their life. Whereas we'll just kind of push past and ignore it. Uh, you know, and then also like you're saying, like, you know, whenever we go to like Asia or Southeast Asia, like you said, you see people, you know, bending fully over like their lumbar spine, like how they pick things up or how they squat down. Like they'll be in that full kind of full squat, just hanging out there all day. And I mean, I think, Fortunately, they haven't been, uh, those movements haven't been demonized on social media yet. I'm sure at some point people in those cultures will, I see it happening where like, they're like, I have a butt wink, you know, and when I squat <laughs> down, you see it infiltrating people who would have never thought about that before. And right. now they're seeing something where it probably doesn't matter to them at all, but the movement's been demonized and they're seeing it via their technology on social media and now they're fearful of it. And so, yeah, it's like, that is one of the unfortunate things of social media, of the technology is that you see things like that, that have been, it's always hard when you see movements being demonized. Really, I don't think 
there's any movement that's inherently bad. It's just that there are situations where people aren't really prepared for the movement, you know, but you can adapt to things. The musculoskeletal system is really amazing. And I think there's too many times where something's been demonized and then someone sees that and they perceive that it's coming from some sort of expert and then they are worried about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, hopefully that doesn't happen. Cause I think in a lot of those cultures you see where they're maybe not as active or don't have access to technology that they don't think about their body in pain in that way. But you do see some of it happening in those people who do have access to technology. So it's, it's um, yeah, another one of those downsides of information being, I think there's mostly positives to this information spreading, but that is definitely one of the negatives. It is always interesting to see people in those other cultures and how they, what they can do with their body. And the fact that, like you say, like they don't stress about being squat, squatting all day. Like, yeah. You know, that's, so that's just, you know, lunch and dinner for them. Exactly. Exactly. So they, uh, yeah, it's like, there's a lot of things we could learn from, uh, I think people, um, I learned a lot being over there and just how people, uh, you know, their relationship with just, just how they view themselves in the world and what they're doing. And I don't know, there's a lot to learn from those cultures. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, it's, we're, we've moved so fast with the technology, um, that, I think the reality is, is that our physically, we haven't adapted to that point in order to have all this sensory input all the time um, and then expect to be able to, like, I I think people are, get confused. Oh, why can't I fall asleep at night? I'm like, well, you've, you've had nothing but sensory input coming into your brain for the past 16 hours and there's been no break and you haven't been outside and 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 unfortunately the sensory input hasn't been this type of interaction where it's with an actual person on the other end where you can you know i I, you have to perceive the information coming in and think about your thoughts and then you know get your brain to work (laughs) to have some type of output it's just been you know, funnel it in, funnel it in, funnel it in. Um, and it's, it's so much of it gets funneled in with, like you said, the perceived, like, this is what perfect looks like. This is what, this is what, whether it's, this is what the perfect body looks like because you're following all these fitness accounts, or this is what the perfect squat looks like, or this is what the perfect push-up looks like. And there's no variation. You're not allowed to, yeah. to variate on that. It has to look like that. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. You, when you put it into practice in your own life, that's when you start to get into trouble, whether it's through perceiving it through pain or, or getting those, you know, that body dysmorphia and emotional stress, whatever it is, right. It's because we've just, we, all of the input is perfect and mm-hmm. there's yeah. no, there's no wiggle room. It's very rigid. Oh yeah. Posture is like that big time. Am I getting too dark in my video? Uh, posture is like that, you know, for sure, where it's like there's this perfect kind of thing you should have. And if you don't, then it's stressful. And that one gets perpetuated on social media, too. And there's a bunch of people trying to fight back against it. But there's way too many um, people that just still have that notion that 
there's certain size fits all posture and you should maintain it all the time. And if you don't, you're going to wear tissues out and get arthritis. And it just, it's just not that simple, you know? So it's, right. you know, it's, it's okay to like, I mean, I slouch like this stuff all the time. Like it's not going to be dangerous to my system. Like y- your body needs to move. I think that's like the overall theme people should think about when it comes to their health of their musculoskeletal system. And I think just in life is like, stress is really good for you if it's dosed correctly right you know like if you dose and move like movement and exercise is a stress and if you dose it correctly your body adapts positively so it's just it's when things are dosed incorrectly that you know people tend to run into issues it doesn't necessarily mean something's bad it's just that it probably was the wrong dosage you know and so it's um you know i think but that's hard to figure your way through when you don't have a background in something. But, uh, you know, I think we, uh, movement and pain is often and fitness is overcomplicated on social media and things. And people do that to get their business going. <laughs> but, uh, cause if you make it really complicated, people think they really need you. Um, yeah, but the truth is it really, even though it, the science of it might be really complex, what you actually do, can be really simple, like simple strategies for complex problems, you know, and yeah, the neuroscience of something or how you move or pain. Yeah. Like that's super, the science of it's super complex, but oftentimes it can just be simple movement kind of strategies or mental health strategies or just finding the right amount of it for you and actually building it into your routine. It doesn't have to be really complex solutions. Yeah. And I, yeah. You know, my account is like that. I think most of what I post on my account is pretty basic movement stuff, but that's because that's what works. Stuff works. Like you don't need like some really fancy exercise on a BOSU ball while you're like throwing things with a partner. And, you know, like it just like, yeah, if you want to do that, that's fun. Sure. But you don't really have to have that stuff. Yeah. My always, my always thought process with a lot of that, the stuff, I, I feel like those really complicated uh, movements always typically come from a lot of like the fitness accounts, right? Mm-hmm. Where we're going to do all that hard stuff uh, without a shirt on just to show how genetically gifted we are. Um, and, and I look at it and I'm like, what's the point? Like, why, mm-hmm. why would I ever need to do this? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. is there is there a point to this exercise or am I doing it just because it looks cool and I can do it and no one else can do it? Yeah. Right. Like, all right, great. Hey, you know, if you can do it more power to you, but don't try to tell someone that this is the goal to get to. Um, Because for most people that's so far off and then they'll never get started on a journey to get any better. Whereas if you can just say like, listen, do some bridges, do some squats, do a couple planks and just do it. Just do, just do those three things every day for two weeks and see how you feel. Exactly. Exactly. Totally. Um, That's um, you're at least doing something instead of, again, it's that, that striving for perfection where you're you're never going to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And then people fail and then they feel horrible and they just, they're less likely to get back to doing it later and succeeding ultimately in the end. And like you said, you just give people simple stuff and you don't overload them with things. I used to do that too back and I did give people too many exercises and then they wouldn't adhere to it. And now I try to always ask people like, Hey, what's realistic for you? Like in a day, 
how many exercises could you realistically do? And most people, it's like one to three, you know? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, okay, great. Just like do these, you know, just see if you can do these couple exercises, just start with that and see how it goes. Just try to stick to them every day or every other day and whatever it is. And, you know, it just, it's such a, I think it's such a better, you know, precision nutrition. I remember John Berardi talking about that they would score things on a 10 point scale and they'd ask people about some behavior change. And if and they'd ask them, how likely are you able to do this to implement this in your life? And if they score, if they said anything less than nine out of, they probably wouldn't stick with it. So I remember him saying that they would start people off in a lot of cases, just saying, Hey, can you take a multivitamin every day? You know, most people say, yeah, 10 out of 10, I can do that. And say, okay, just yeah. start with that. Take a multivitamin every day. We'll start there. You know, and I think that's a good, when you're looking at behavior change, that's a good sort of way of thinking about it, you know, on a, on a 10 point scale, like how likely can you actually, how likely are you to do this thing? And if it's a low score, it just pe- adherence is the biggest issue in the rehab world. People just don't do the things they're told to do. And I think they're given too much a lot of the time or it's too complicated, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it, uh, that's funny that you said, um, if they score under a nine, they're most likely not going to do it. Cause I was thinking in my head, I'm like, yeah, you know, seven out of seven out of 10. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that's what everyone always naturally says, but yeah, if yeah. it's not a 10 out of 10, you're not probably not going to yeah. do it. Yeah. 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 It makes you realize that whole uh, back to like the cycle side of things, how much of a factor it is, but um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's cool to, I mean, like I said, this whole year, uh, kind of element of, I mean, I, I think like everyone else, I'll be really happy when it's over and we get back to somewhat of normal. It's not, it's not a cool enough experiment to stay in it, but it is interesting to see how much people can do just through virtual sort of guidance, you know, and what people can do. And I kind of saw it a little bit before with just my Instagram pre COVID. I knew, lots of people could look at exercises and get better on their own. So, you know, it can happen, but now it's just, everyone was forced into it. So I think it was good for the practitioners too, because it, like you were talking about earlier, it kind of takes away some of the passive treatments and hopefully that motivates more practitioners to kind of stay that way and not make people dependent on, you know, as soon as you walk in the door, just lay on the table and I'm going to work on you. Maybe there's a different way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm in agreement with you. It's been a cool experiment, but I'm ready for it to be done. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm ready for uh, <laughs> vaccine rollouts. That's what I'm ready exactly, for. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> vaccine travel. Like I, I think, you know, and health wise, man, you realize how important it is to have real interactions with people because, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone always talks about how important social health is for overall health, but I never had really experienced it until this. And I, uh, sometimes I feel like my brain during this COVID situation is just in a fog. Like, I think it's because I'm not, it's all this information coming in. And like you said, there's no real processing. There's no engagement with other outside people outside your family. And I will feel like I'm in a fog actually seeing patients in person. Like when I have people roots my brain, you know, so yeah. And exercise helps too, but it's like exercise and talking to real people or like doing like an actual conversation like this. My yeah. brain comes out of that fog. But when I have days where I'm just, I have a buddy who's doing his PhD in neuroscience and there's some studies he talks about where they take people and have them do cognitively challenging tasks. And then they have one group of people who get a rest that doesn't involve looking at their phone and social media. 
and another gr a group where their rest period is looking at social media. And the people who look at social media, it turns out, like you'd probably predict, it's not much of a rest period for your brain and that they're much more fatigued going into the next cognitive task and do worse performance-wise than the people who had just a true rest. So, you know, and I notice it like when I'm tired and I sit here and it's too easy to sit and stare at your phone and just stimulation and then I'm like exhausted. Sometimes I just like put that thing away and just like lay and do nothing, you know, just like try to be in my own thoughts or be outside or whatever it is, like just get off of just being bombarded by stimulation. Yeah. Yeah. What's funny is um, I, I've noticed, you know, even on the things, uh, the small things like going out, uh, now we can't eat at restaurants yeah. right now, but yeah. you know, when we could two months ago, you know, yeah. before it was always run out the door and do I have my, my wallet, phone, keys, like, do I have all of that? And yeah. recently it was like, um, okay, phone staying there in the house. I got my wallet and my keys, like, believe it or not, like my parents survived without a cell phone going out yeah. to dinner before yeah. that, like, and I would consciously leave it because I didn't want to be around it anymore. I yeah. like, I just needed the break. Um, yeah. and knowing that I couldn't access it. Yeah. Right? Like it, it's oh. one thing to have it and try to turn it over or like mm -hmm. whatever, but it's a completely different animal when you physically leave it at the house and you're gone. Yeah. It's actually pretty relieving. I mean, I'll do that a lot of time at dinner and things, just leave it in the car. I'll put it under my seat. And it's like when it's out of, cause if it's on the table flipped over, you still see it. And it's like, it's still on your brain and you might be wondering about what's happening on something on there. And it, it is, it's amazing how just erasing it from your awareness and leaving it somewhere else, how good it feels. Yeah. And I think, like you said, I think uh, from a biological perspective, technology is moving faster than we can adapt. And we're going to have to come up with strategies to manage our health with technology. And probably a big one is not bringing it with you. Like just yeah. force breaks, you know, I, uh, I've, I, and I forget where I, I saw this. This might have been on Joe Rogan. I, I feel like it was, but uh, they were talking about how, you know, Elon Musk is doing that whole like Neuralink now where we're just going to implant stuff into your brain. Um, and people have, you know, there there's all that concern of, oh, we're going to turn into these, you know, robots where you're going to have like this external brain and all that stuff. Uh, but the reality is, is your external brain's already right here. Like this yeah. is an external hard drive of yeah. your brain and yeah. all of the information that you need. It's all right there. Because uh, yeah. I can't remember all the emails. I can't remember all like the everything that I have to do. And that's why I put it into the phone. But it's it, it can be, you know, I don't think my brain is designed to have a terabyte of storage at its fingertips at all times. Yeah. I think it would be our downfall, honestly. Like I think if you can't ever detach from the technology, we'd have all kinds of more mental illness problems. I mean, I think it, I would prefer, I, I mean, it sounds cool to have be just connected automatically to the technology, but I think like being able to set this thing away somewhere and not have it is uh, good for our health. I just don't, I can't imagine. I didn't really think of that that way until our conversation, right? But because I've heard Elon talk about that, and I just kind of thought, well, that's cool. Sounds like very innovative and cool. But the health, the mental health outside of it, 
of always having it right there and you being able to access. I mean, imagine if you could access social media at any moment, didn't have to get your phone. Yeah. I just, it sounds horrible. (laughs) Yeah. That, and that was, I think it was Elon that was talking about it. And he said, because he was the one that basically said your phone is already like an external brain. What Neuralink, what his envision of the Neuralink would do is decrease the bandwidth that it takes from your brain to access your external brain. Because right now you can only go as fast as your thumbs. Exactly. Yeah. You can cut that out and you can just go as fast as your thoughts. Yeah. That's you. You're going to turn it. You're, you're going to turn into a supercomputer. Yeah. essentially what he yeah. was saying and i was yeah. like that's cool but yeah. scared that's basically the beginning of terminator uh, <laughs> exactly. so i think about that all the time weird. i think the like the actual date in terminator when the machines take over it's like sometime in august in 2025 i'm like that could happen they might have right predicted it right 2020 was weird 2025 yeah <laughs> yeah I've I've always said, you know, I told my wife, uh, once we have kids and they get to an age where uh, they're wanting cell phones, great. Here's a flip phone. Mm -hmm. Learn, learn how to text via T9. That's what you you get. Um, Our daughter, our oldest in fourth grade and we are not, it's going to be a flip phone. I don't mind if at some point she needs to be able to text or call us, but I'm not handing out smartphones. And I mean, it's just... Not for a long time. It's just too destructive, I think, to like when you don't have your identity figured out and then other people are potentially harming you and how you feel think about yourself. I just I'm not gonna let like that happen to my kids. You know, I mean I'll try to introduce stuff when they can handle it, but um I think too many people are handing that stuff out too early. Yeah. And it's you know, I I don't when can you handle it? I'm thirty years old. I don't know if I can handle it. <laughs> True. It's true. Exactly. <laughs> the time. So yeah. No. Uh, oh, it's um yeah, the technology is so interesting and there's so many cool discussions like you're talking about, like on different podcasts and things. I think we're all as a species becoming a little more aware, or at least some of us. It's probably really the minority, but some people are becoming aware and hopefully that kind of guides future developments. I don't know. I mean, there's always the money making side of it, which seems to be the main driver, but um Hopefully people like Elon and some of those people that are, or Apple or, you know, whoever it is, or consider the social media, people who run the social media companies, hopefully they actually look at, I mean, I know they're looking at some of the data and like echo chambers and how negative some of the stuff can be, but will it actually, will they actually be inspired to change things? Hopefully it happens, but otherwise yeah. I guess we're going to have to try and teach people how to manage it. I um I don't know. have you seen the the social dilemma yet? I keep meaning to watch it. Everyone keeps talking about it. Just, yeah, it's good. It it's really good. Um, and I was listening to a, a piece on NPR, and it actually makes a lot of sense. Where they were saying uh, these are you know it's one of the one of the things that really led to the social dilemma movie is they were noticing a skyrocket increase of suicides in teens and preteens. Um, and it directly correlates with rollouts of social media, um, and getting that into, to kids hands. And they're saying that these social media companies have known this information for a a pretty long time, but as a company, 
you can't go about changing it because then you're admitting that you know the faults. But at wow. least now there, there, there's a hypothesis that some of these companies are glad that this has come out because now there's everyone else saying that you need to push change. And so they can say, well, well, we don't know that this is for sure, but this is what our consumers want. Yeah. So we'll make the change. Gotcha. And oh, so it's not necessarily them admitting guilt, but it's yeah. just them saying, this is what our the consumers want. Yeah. And so we'll make the change. Yeah. We're the good guys. We're listening to our customers. Exactly. So now who I, at this point, to be honest with you, I could care less whether that's true or not. I just want them to start making the change. But, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It'll be interesting. I mean, I remember at one point on my page, you know, Instagram was kind of toying around with for a while. They wouldn't show you the exact number of likes that things got. They would just say, <laughs> and thousands of others or something. And it was interesting. I was listening to, I think the CEO of Twitter, they were he was talking about, you know, that maybe doing away with things like that, people would be more motivated to actually share content that they thought was positive or useful and not just that it would get likes and engagement. Mm -hmm. And uh, my account for a while, they had changed that. So I couldn't see how many likes there were unless I went in there and dug into it a little bit deeper, but it did kind of change. I did feel a little bit less pressured to post things that would get lots of likes Mm -hmm. and post more what I actually believed I should post. You know, because there are some messages I'd love to put out, but I know they're not going to get much engagement, you know, so I don't do it. And that whole thing, they left it on my account for life, and then it went back to what it was before and it's never changed again. So it's interesting. It'd be cool if they did some things like that. There's a side of me that's like, it'd be really healthy for everybody. There's another side of me that's like, man, that might hurt my engagement and my account wouldn't be as positive. <laughs> so it's yeah. hard now because there's kind of a conflict, but I think, Overall, if they change things for people's health, I think it's a no-brainer in the long run. Hopefully, they'll do it. Yeah, I'll tell you that's one of the nice things about uh, you know really doing this from the beginning uh, and building my own page and, and all that social engagement is that I I can post whatever the hell I want because yeah. it's you know I don't really I don't have a business riding on it I don't have to you know support a family on it. This is yeah. all for, I, I decided I was going to do this because like we were saying is I noticed that all of the input coming in was, was one way. And I didn't actually, like, I couldn't challenge my brain to talk to people. And yeah. so I was like, well, why don't I just start a podcast and start talking to people that are smarter than me and, or know different things than me and start challenging my brain to like, get it to start working again. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's the nice thing is. I don't really care if, if it engages people or not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no, it's, riding on it. It's so good too, I think, to put things out there and just put things out. Like, just think about like, what do I actually think? Just that process and then write it down or talk about it somewhere. Like, I don't know if you're listening to Seth Godin, but he, um, Seth Godin is a, I guess, I don't know if I should say marketing guy, but that's kind of what he gets talked about. But he's just his, I think his innate sort of, assessment of people's psychology is just really good and he does uh he runs the most popular blog in the world but it's just a blog where he kind of every day consistently every day he writes down his thoughts about different things and there are very 
a lot, a lot of most times really interesting reads that just kind of apply to life. And uh, if you just put in the name, if you put in Seth in Google, he's the number one thing that comes up. But it's um, oh wow, it's interesting. He I, I've heard him on Tim Ferriss. He's on a lot of people's stuff, but uh, he just kind of talks about that practice of writing something every day and how good it is for kind of your brain to just put your thoughts down every day and. You know, in my account, start out the same way you're talking about, where it was never meant to be a business. It was just doing something. It wouldn't. Nobody had any control over it, which was great. Like I wasn't pressured from anyone. It was just only what I wanted to put out every day, and it still is mostly that. But now, like when it gets to a certain size, and you know what things, it's hard to not get to a point where now, where you start to transition to, I just want this to grow, and what right. can I do to make it grow, and it takes away a little bit from doing exactly what you want to do when you know this other thing will get people engaged. And I think that's where it gets tricky. That's where I've seen some people kind of falter and put out language or posts that aren't true to what they believe, but will engage people. And unfortunately the things that engage people are things that sound that make movement and pain sound more dangerous than it is. Right. You know, if you get people a little, like if you create some kind of worry or do something that's, or use language that's sort of, or imagery that looks dangerous or threatening, people will engage with it. And so it's really trying to control yourself and not go down that direction, you know, or like fight with people. Like I just get fighting with people is really exhausting. But if I were to put a post out that attacked chiropractors, I'd get a ton of engagement. I probably have a ton of new followers. Right. <laughs> but it's exhausting and I don't really want to do that. Even when I put things out that aren't meant to be an attack and someone perceives it as an attack, it is exhausting. So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, and yeah, it's man, hard too, because, you know, sometimes uh, you, you, you want to engage with people. You also you need to sometimes like shock them in mm-hmm. order to, to listen to what you have to say. And so you have to sometimes be like, yeah. Sitting all day is sitting yeah. is the next smoking, right? Exactly. That one of a, sitting yeah. is the new smoking. No, yeah. no, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah. Smoking is still smoking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sitting but is can, bad. I get it, but yeah, but yeah. smoking is still smoking. You can see why those companies get kind of clickbaity because it's hard to get people's attention. And um, I mean, I've fallen victim to it on things before, where the initial thing I do something that maybe is kind of get some attention and then try to actually explain what I think in the text. But the problem is, is that a lot of people don't read the text. So they just see that image and think something. And it's, so it's a, it's a fine line to get people's attention and uh, not be harmful to their health. Yeah. But yeah, it's tough. It's, uh, it's challenging. Yeah. It's a whole, it's doing that whole, it's just a different, uh, you know, it's just, it's like a constant evolution of how you navigate those things. Yeah. So, uh, Hey, what's, uh, what's next for you? Got anything on the horizon? Yeah, I've got, um, I mean, let me think, you know, besides kind of, you know, we just came back from living abroad. So it's, I'm kind of back in kind of the normal stuff of just like my normal kind of patient care and building that up and building my online stuff. I kind of have, uh, I have some, I have one sort of exciting project, uh, that there are a lot of details I can't give, but, um, working on, uh, putting, uh, 
pitching a show to Netflix. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, kind of in the health space. So um, that's probably my most exciting thing. And, you know, the social media thing, you know, there's down, I mean, it takes time and it's a sacrifice away from things, but man, I am so grateful. Sometimes I have to remind myself being four years into it because there are times now where I'm like, I'm done. I'm just going to delete it and be done or <laughs> sell it or something. But um, yeah, I have to rein myself back in because it has such a positive impact and it's cre- it, there have been so many opportunities that have, I have just to even be able to consider different opportunities, which just because you have a certain following, people just offer things to you. So right. it's cool. There's so many neat opportunities. And this is one example. I'd never be in a position to pitch something. Social media, the size of your social media following matters a lot now in life for mm-hmm. things. So it helps kind of open doors. And so this is one example. And so it's probably my most, it's the thing I get most excited about right now. So uh, it's yeah, getting super I would too. yeah, it's like, I've been working on it with two other guys for a few months. Well, a long, I mean, actually working on this, it started probably three or four years ago, but um, now in the last three months, we really got back into it and it's getting close probably by the end of the year to be ready to pitch. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be cool. Once it drops, sign me up. I'll I'll watch it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like there's not enough content out there right now with COVID to consume. So it's a good time to hopefully get something out and kind of have something positive and uh, another thing for people to take in. And, you know, so, I mean, it's still going to have the same goal as everything I've done of providing hopefully positive resources and information for people, but also that balance of making it entertaining and uh, getting people's attention. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's kind of the, other than that, kind of, I don't have any other really new or exciting things. I'm kind of in a little bit of a, just focusing on rehab science and things that, projects that kind of come out of that. Yeah, well, you know, between what you do with your own business and then trying to pitch Netflix, I'm sure you're, <laughs> you're busy enough, so. It, it keeps, uh, yeah, it keeps enough for me. I mean, it's, uh, I'm always trying to find that balance. Like we're talking about health here. And so I try to practice what I preach and not load my plate up with too much stuff. Cause I know if I, that happens and I, I have more pain and problems. And so I definitely devote a lot of my energy to making sure it took me a lot of years to figure that out, but not taking on too many things and having more free time, like just family time that, so I, that balance is, is super important for me and just overall health. So I purposely don't take on a lot of stuff too. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, with how busy you are, I really appreciate you coming on to do this. This has been uh, great to, to pick your brain and catch up. And I look forward to continuing to follow you, not only on social media, but hopefully on Netflix. Hopefully, and fingers crossed but uh yeah awesome it was great to catch up i mean it's been too many years since we talked last so thanks again for having me and hopefully there's something in here that your listeners can you know like a little nugget there's something they can take away and and improve their health that's what i'm always after so that's awesome yeah well i appreciate it if you don't already follow them on uh, social media it's at rehab science uh dr tom walters thank you very much Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it, man. See you later.